You can be seated. We'll turn now this morning to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Continuing our look at the book of Kings, we come now to the time when the ark is brought into the temple and the temple is dedicated as well, Solomon's grand temple. 1 Kings 8, before we read, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word that it tells us of your great glory. And we pray that as we read of your glory, we read of your faithfulness, we read of your mystery, that you would point us to your Son, that we might come to him who is the true temple, might be blessed by him, we might draw near to you by him. We ask for your great grace upon us. Focus and fix our minds upon your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 8. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there. But I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple. But your son, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who built the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and said, O Lord, God of Israel, 
There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me, as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be opened toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of all men, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, 
sent from heaven, your dwelling place. Hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of that iron smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses, when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep the commands, decrees, and regulations he gave our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. On that same day, the king consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the fellowship offerings because the bronze altar before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the fellowship offerings. So Solomon observed the festival at that time and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt. They celebrated it before our Lord God for seven days and seven days more, 14 days in all. On the following day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king and then went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. The challenge with a passage like this is often, at least for me, deciding which of the 12 sermons that could be preached out of this passage to preach. I thought perhaps that I could, pray, I could preach rather about the evangelical temple, about the nations coming to the temple and how the, the nations would know the greatness of God and how Christ is the one to whom the, the nations come. But I decided to go a different direction. I decided this morning to focus on the greatness of our God. We begin with the, the greatness of God's glory. Our God is a God of great glory. Just, just imagine that you could be present for this scene. And you come into Jerusalem and Solomon has summoned all the elders, all the leaders of the tribes, all the officials and all the land. He's gathered them all together in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's population is exploding already. Now the city is full to the brim and all these people are there celebrating. There's so many sacrifices that they cannot be numbered. The whole city is full of celebration. It's, it's a grand 
party thrown by Solomon himself on behalf of this, this dedication of the temple. And then come the priests, the holy, consecrated people of God. And they're carrying these poles. And the poles are strung through little rings on the bottom of the ark. And they carry these poles all the way up to the temple. They cross the temple's porch and they walk through those grand doors, past those pillars, Jacob and Boaz, reminding the people of the, the promise and the power of God. They walk past those pillars and through the door and the doors close and suddenly for them it's hushed. They begin to hear their footsteps echo in the gold-plated room. And they walk past all those reminders of Eden. They walk past all the, the flowers and the palm trees and the fruits and the cherubim. And they walk into the most holy place, to the place where the ark is to rest. And there they, they place the ark in its place, underneath those foreboding cherubim, those 15 feet wide cherubim, those holy defenders of the honor and the glory of God, those reminders that sinners have no place in the presence of God. And there they, they place the ark. And it's not just the ark. Inside the ark are two stone tablets, two identical stone tablets, each with the Ten Commandments. And these are not just any stone tablets. These are tablets cut out of the rock and signed with the very finger of God Himself. This is the ark that contains the covenant of the Lord, the ark which had been made by Moses, which had gone all the way through the wilderness. This is the ark that when the priest stepped foot with it into the Jordan River, the Jordan River stopped flowing so the people could cross through. This is the ark which went into battle, was captured, and brought plagues on the people that they captured. So terrible that they sent the ark back to the Israelites. This is the ark so holy that when Uzzah reached out, God struck him down for touching it. This is the ark which is the presence of God and hear the priests bring it into the temple and then they retreat out of the temple. And as they walk back out of those doors, you can imagine the sound just hitting them, the waves of all the people hitting them and then suddenly everything stops. Because as soon as they leave the temple, the glory of God descends and fills the temple. God is here. And when God is here, everything else rightfully stops. And the presence of God fills His great and glorious temple. The same glory cloud that was with the Israelites in Egypt. The same glory cloud which surrounded the mountain of God. The same glory cloud which filled the tabernacle. Now God's presence is here in this temple. And it is glorious. But we should note something which is subtly significant in verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, we read, The priests withdrew from the holy place. The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled His temple. When the glory of the Lord fills the temple which Solomon had made, the priests who have a right to go into the temple have to cease their work because they are not allowed to come near to the very presence of the glory of God without being destroyed. And so we notice that as God comes in this time, in this particular manifestation of His glory, that when He comes, God draws near to His people. 
but his people are not allowed to draw near to him so much as we should wish. That as in the garden we walked with God, we have not been brought all the way back to that, even in the grandeur of Solomon's temple. So our God is a God of great glory, and as he is a God of great glory, along with that goes that our God is a God, is a God of great faithfulness. When when Solomon builds this temple in this day, this day is the high point of Solomon's life. It doesn't get any better than this for Solomon. And Solomon has this temple built and dedicated, and then God's glory comes as a stamp of approval, saying, I approve of this house. This house is a house worthy of my name, or at least as near as a house can get to being worthy of my name. And Solomon acknowledges this, and, and when he does, he says, I have indeed built a magnificent place for you to dwell forever. Then the scripture says that Solomon turned and blessed the people. And how does he bless them? He preaches to them. Preaching is a blessing. Preaching is a blessing. I say that because I need to remind myself that preaching is a blessing. And Solomon reminds the people of God's faithfulness to them. He, he preaches on how God has kept his promises to David and to Moses, how God has been faithful to his promises all these days. He preaches that first, then he has a very long pastoral prayer, and then at the end, he preaches that again. He has a prayer, uh, he has a prayer as the meat of the sandwich, and the preaching is the bread. And in that, he preaches about how good God is to his people and now they see with their own eyes they see God's faithfulness I was thinking about this I thought how many generations of Israelites had lived and died waiting and hoping to see this moment and I remember that I'm a Cubs fan and I thought how many generations of people lived and died hoping to see the Cubs win a World Series. And I got to see it. Now that's nothing as glorious as all the generations for hundreds of years waiting for God to give rest, waiting for God to choose a place, waiting for the temple, waiting to see the glory of God come down again, and they get to see it. And on the very day they've seen it, Solomon reminds them of how great God is. And you wonder if perhaps Solomon seems to be stating the obvious. When you've seen the glory of God with your own eyes today, do you really need to be reminded of how great God is? But sometimes we do need to be reminded of the obvious, don't we? I was thinking about this. We know things that are obvious. We know things like God answers prayer. But it's good for us to be reminded that God answers prayer. We need to be reminded that God is faithful. Just about every Sunday night, we spend time taking prayer requests. And I, I write those prayer requests down on a sheet. And I keep all those sheets. And I keep those sheets, and I drop them sometimes. I keep those sheets because I want us to be reminded and have a, a record of God's faithfulness to us. I want us to be able to go back and see how it is that we prayed for things and the Lord gave us exactly what we prayed for, or sometimes more than what we dared to ask for. I thought today might be a good time to have gone through those sheets and remind us of some of the ways that God has answered prayer. So on August 21st of 2016, 
We gave praise to God because Matt Vanderheiden's cancer had been in remission for one whole year. We prayed for that fervently as a church, did we not? And God answered our prayer. And on October 16, 2016, we prayed that the Life Learning Dorm at Westville Correctional Institute would be established. Then on April 2, 2017, we prayed for wisdom for that unit as it had been established and continues to be a blessing to the men and the brothers in prison in that place to this day. On April 23, 2017, we prayed that Jordan Tannis' heart surgery would be successful, and it was. On April 8th of this year, we prayed for a healthy birth and baby for Hunter Gadziak, and there, were, there was a long, arduous labor, and there were concerns about his health, but God gave us exactly what we had prayed for. And on June 3rd, 2018, that's last week, we prayed that Jerry Cassidy, when his ears were turned on, so to speak, and his, his cochlear implant was turned on, that he would be able to hear, even though the doctor said it would be a long time before he could hear and make sense of words again. And God gave us more than we dared ask for. The moment those ears were turned on, he could hear again. The God who was faithful to answer the prayers of Moses and David and then Solomon, that same God is faithful today. The faithful God of the temple is the faithful God of the church. Even in 2018. And then God, as He is a, a God of great glory and a God of great faithfulness, so too God is a God of great mystery. And we see that mystery contained in this passage. But let me ask you a question. Do you get God? Like, do, you, do you understand God? Do you, do you comprehend God? Think about that for a moment. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Those of you who are steeped in the Dutch ways can prepare yourselves for raising your hand. Do you get God? Okay. A yes or no question? Those of you who think it's yes, you think you do get God, raise your hand. Okay? Those of you who think no, I don't get God, raise your hand. Now I think you're both right. Those of you who didn't raise your hands, I don't think you're right. You're either very confused or you're a little bit too stiff. But I think, I think you're both right. With, there is a sense in which we do get God. We understand that in this passage, God is present. We understand that in this passage, God is present, that He is there in glory, that He is pleased with this building, that He is there to manifest His glory to these people. We get that God is there. But there's a sense in which we don't really get God all the way. We can't wrap our minds entirely around God. There are, there are parts of God that we simply cannot understand. We have to hold our, our getting of God, our understanding of God in tension with the fact that we do not fully understand God. I think of it like this. You go, to, you go to a beach. We'll say it's Lake Michigan, which I really think should be renamed Lake Wisconsin, but that's, that's a different issue. So you go to Lake Michigan, you're at the beach, and you have a bucket. Okay, and you, you take the bucket and you go down into the water of the lake. You come back and you say to your friends, the lake is in the bucket. It's kind of true, right? I mean, the water is from the lake, and it's in the bucket. The water is compositionally the same as the water that's in the lake. The water is part of the lake, but it's not all of the lake. Right? There is much outside the bucket that is still the lake. So it is without our understanding of God. We have a true understanding, but it is not a whole, comprehensive understanding of God. Now, that's not to say that our understanding is not sufficient. 
God tells us everything we need to know about him, to serve him and to praise him and to belong to him in his word. We have a sufficient understanding, but it is not an exhaustive understanding. We know that, that God is great. We know that God spans far more than our comprehension can come, but we also know that everything about God which we do not understand in no sense contradicts that which we do understand because God is perfectly consistent. One of my great pet peeves back in our days in the RCA, etc., one of my great pet peeves, people love to say, God is still speaking. And what they mean by that is God is still speaking and he's saying different things now than he said in the past. That's garbage. God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Nothing he said in the past, he's going to contradict in the present or in the future. If God says it's by grace you've been saved in the past, you're still saved by grace. If God speaks this way in the past, it's this way in the present, and it'll be that way in the future. And yet, we understand that there is a way in which we do not understand God. He is without beginning and without end. Everything in our experience has a beginning and an end. God is infinite. He exists outside the universe. You and I are like little dinky tiny specks in the universe. We cannot comprehend just how vast and great and glorious God is. But we do understand a part, a sufficient part of God's glory. And Solomon here embraces the mystery of God. He says in, in verse 27, he says in, in verse 27, let's read, let's read verse 27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Solomon understands that God is here, but he also understands that God is not only here, that God is imminent but that he is also transcendent. And Solomon prays another mysterious thing in verse 39. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart. Forgive and act. Act justly, but forgive mercifully. How can that be? How can God be perfectly just and be perfectly merciful. That's a, that's a mystery. Then he goes on and he says, deal with each man according to all he does. Ugh. I'm not so sure I want that. And then he goes on and he says something even more mysterious, since you know the heart. But the heart is deceitful above all things. I don't perhaps want God to deal with me according to everything I've done or according to all the inclinations of my heart. So how can it be that Solomon can pray these things? How can it be that Solomon can pray asking for justice and mercy, asking for God to deal with us? It, it, is, it is a mystery, and Solomon goes even deeper than that. Solomon dares to ask that God would forgive his people, not just for maybe, shall we say, small sins, but for great grand sins. And he said, he prays, that even, Lord, if your people stick their thumb in your eye again and again and again, so terribly, so rebelliously, that you destroy your own nation and send them off into exile, even if they do that, even then, when they are out and they are captive, 
even then will you please, if they pray, forgive him. He asks for mercy. It is absolutely not merited. But go back with me to the faithfulness of God and then go forward with me to the story of Daniel. You recall from Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den, that King Darius, who was king over Persia, King Darius, uh, at the behest of his advisors, his wicked advisors, signs a, a decree that says, anybody who prays to anybody else except for me for 30 days, for these next 30 days, is in big trouble and tossed to the lion. We read this in Daniel 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel prays facing the land, the city, and the temple, exactly as Solomon had said. And not long after that, God's people get to go home. You read the very first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah himself, a Jewish exile. And Nehemiah is there, and he is distressed. And he is distressed because his people are in exile. They are so far away from the promised land. The city of Jerusalem lies in ruins, and Nehemiah begins praying confessing all the sins of the people, asking for mercy, pleading for forgiveness. In the very next chapter, the king of Persia not only allows Nehemiah and his friends to go back, but he pays for their work. Solomon had prayed that the conquerors would treat their captives with generosity. And that's precisely what we see done. God is mysterious in his being, and he is mysterious in his doing. What I want us to see most of all in our time together this morning is that as God is a God of great glory and a God of great faithfulness and a God of great mystery, chief among these things is that God is a God of a great son. That Jesus is the ultimate thing, ultimate person to which this passage points. This passage is not first and foremost about a temple with all the gold that has been subsequently destroyed and of which there is no trace left. It's not about a king who preached a great sermon, prayed a great prayer, built a great temple, and subsequently shipwrecked his life. This passage is first and foremost about God's eternal dwelling place with man. The whole story of the Bible is about how God brings us back to himself. It's about how God deals with the problem of sin and ushers us back into his personal presence. It's about how, how we're able to, to walk with God once more. As Adam and Eve could walk with God, so the whole story of the Bible is how God brings us back to be able to walk with him. And he does not bring us back into his personal presence with Solomon's temple or any building made by human hands. He, he brings us back into his personal presence by the work of his son. The most, the most amazing part of this passage, for me anyways, and if I could see any three things in, in the Old Testament, I think I would want to see the, the creation and the parting of the Red Sea with the glory cloud, and I would want to see this day. But the most amazing thing about this passage is that God shows up. 
that God is present, and He's present in a way very rarely seen. God is seen with the eyes of His people. I want to read to you from John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. What was that? We have seen His glory. This, this Jesus, this Jesus is the, the presence, the embodiment of the glory of God. That He is the, the dwelling place of God. That God shows up in more glory in Jesus than He shows up in the temple. That in Jesus, God doesn't only walk with man. In Jesus, God walks as a man. That when you see Jesus, you see a glory far greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. You see God's glory in its fullest, most rapturous form that we can possibly see until we see Jesus and see God face to face in the new creation. You remember that when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, He blocks the way to the garden. He sends the cherub, the angel, and he sends the flaming sword to block the way. We remember that we are evicted from God's presence, and we are not allowed back in. And the cry of the converted heart is, bring me back into the garden. The cry of the converted heart is move the cherub out of the way. Let me back. Quench the sword. I want glory again. I want perfection again. I want to be with you again. Bring me back into your presence. Is that your cry? Do you want to be in God's presence? Do you want God's glory back? Do you want to walk with God person to person, face to face? Do you want to be in perfection with God again? He doesn't do that through a temple made with human hands. He does that through His Son. Jesus is the one who quenches Eden's sword when He Himself is struck down. Jesus is the one who bids the cherub be gone when He walks out of the tomb. God keeps His promise. God keeps His promise to redeem His people in Christ. All of God's promises are kept all of God's faithfulness is found exclusively in Christ. Jesus is the answer to the mystery of God's justice and His mercy. That Jesus, in offering Himself as the perfect sacrifice, receives in Himself the fullness of the justice of God, that God's justice is perfectly satisfied. And so He gives perfect mercy to His people. Jesus is the great high priest who allows us to come back into the presence of God again. Jesus, Emmanuel, is how God dwells with us. Jesus. Jesus is the one who judges the nations, who deals with each one according to what they have done. Jesus is the true king who builds a temple and is himself a temple far greater than anything Solomon had built or could possibly Imagine, Jesus. Jesus brings us back into the presence of God. Not the presence of God at a distance as with the priests in Solomon's day, but into the personal presence of God. 
and we can come into the presence of God without being destroyed because of Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our God is a God of great glory and a God of great faithfulness and a God of great mystery. Our God is great. Do you want this God? Are you looking for this God? You will find Him. You will find Him in the virgin's womb. And you will find Him in Bethlehem's manger. And you will find Him on Calvary's cross. And you will find Him in the light of the new dawn outside the garden tomb. And you will find Him seated at God's right hand. And you will find him one day coming with the clouds of glory for us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we confess you are far beyond understanding. And we confess that it is only because of your faithfulness, your mercy, that we may belong to you at all. We confess that if you looked at our hearts, if you dealt with each of us according to what we have done, we would have no reason for hope. But you have dealt with us according to what we have done by placing what we have done on Christ. And then you give us mercy. And you give us a meeting place with you. That Christ is our brother and he is your son. Therefore, we are your sons and daughters. And you have shown us your glory. And we pray one day, Father, that we might see your glory more than just in the pages of your word, if we may dare ask you. We pray that we might see your glory face to face. In a creation and in a city where there is no temple, for you, our Lord, are the temple. And there is no sun. For you shine brilliantly that all may see. And we pray that as we continue working through kings, and as we see the failures of all these men, that it might make us love Jesus, the great king, all the more. We pray in his name. Amen.